morning, church. Mark chapter 1, I'll be uh, reading and preaching from the Christian Standard Bible this morning, the CSB. Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 9. It says, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John, that is John the Baptist, in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. The title of this sermon is Spirit Vigilance. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful that you work in our lives, that you are a near and present God. And we are thankful that you give us everything that we need for every single season of our lives. And so we ask today that you would just do the same, that you would give us what we need according to the riches of Christ Jesus and the riches of your word and the fullness of your spirit. We ask that you would do it for your glory. I ask that you would anoint my mind and lips to speak in conjunction and harmony with your heart and your mind. We ask you to open our ears and hearts and minds to hear everything you want us to today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So spirit vigilance, if you don't know what the word vigilance means, the definition is, it is the action of keeping careful watch for possible danger. If you were here last week, then you, were, you saw many people testifying of how God has been moving and how God has been at work and speaking into people's lives. Walls have been falling down, chains are breaking, God's speaking and moving. There has been and is continuing to be just a really beautiful outpouring of God's love and power in our lives. But here's what I want to talk about today. Anytime there is an outpouring, there will also be resistance. When the Lord starts moving, the devil shows up. <laughs> it's like the easy way to say that. When the Spirit of God starts breaking out and breaking into people's lives, the devil starts roaring, so to speak, which is why we need Holy Spirit vigilance. We need spirit vigilance. Why do we need it? Well, Peter said, First Peter 5.8, very plainly, friends, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, this is why, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We need to be vigilant. We need to be carefully watchful because we have an enemy who's out there wanting to undermine and destroy whatever God is doing, whenever God is doing it in your life, and devour even the very essence of who you are. And it is not more true than when there is like a, a fresh move of God in your life in some way. So there's three things that I want to accomplish today. This is, this is the goal, if you will. First of all, I want to caution us that the devil is at work and that his work intensifies as the Father pours out his spirit and as he speaks and moves and as Jesus is being exalted. The next goal is I want to expose how the devil does that work because honestly he's been doing it the same way since the beginning and quite frankly because it keeps working, right? And then lastly, I want to encourage us then how to respond what do we do when the devil shows up and starts working, trying to work in and around our lives? Through this Holy Spirit series that we've been in, this is the end of, you know, it's the 17th week or something like that. We're going to finish next week. Um, we've looked at the life of Jesus a lot to see an example of the Holy Spirit at work. And in our text today, we see what happens in the life of Jesus immediately after the Spirit is poured out upon him. The Father speaks to him and over him. And then he is led into a new season and calling. Spoiler alert, what happens is that the devil shows up. So this isn't going to be a super in-depth 
study into Mark chapter 1, but rather I want to use this text as a springboard to encourage us with some things that we believe God is wanting to say to us as a church body and as individuals. So up until this point in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, Jesus has been kind of quiet, right? He's like 30 years old right now. His whole life he's been kind of quiet. Um, and right now, the time has come for him to begin what we would call his public ministry. So he shows up to John the Baptist, who has been baptizing people, telling them to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And John the Baptist was this forerunner who went before Jesus. And he's telling everybody, hey, the Messiah is coming after me. And so Jesus shows up. And there in Mark chapter 1, we just read it. He is baptized by John the Baptist. And immediately after he is baptized, he is coming out of the water. And it says in verse 10 of Mark chapter 1, it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. In Luke's telling of, of this, uh, he says that from this place he went out into the wilderness and into ministry full of the Holy Spirit. So there is this anointing, this outpouring, this filling of the Spirit. I want to look at a couple of things right here before we talk about the devil showing up. I want to talk about what happened before the devil showed up, leading up to the devil showing up. First thing I want to bring out to our attention is before the devil shows up, that the Spirit of God moved upon the life of Jesus. What happened before the devil showed up? The Spirit of God moved upon the life of Jesus. And what was happening here is that the Holy Spirit was anointing Jesus and empowering him to walk in everything that the Father had laid out before him. The Spirit moving upon the life of Jesus. The second thing that happened here is that the Father spoke to and over Jesus. It says that in verse 11 of Mark chapter 1, that the heavens opened and a voice came from heaven and said, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The voice says, You are my son. So who, who's speaking then? It's the father, right? You are my son. It is the father speaking. It is the father's voice. And the father, the father speaks and declares, one, who Jesus is. He declares, one, who Jesus is, namely his son. Now, I could go on for hours, honestly, about all the things that the Father did not choose to declare when he was going to say one thing about Jesus and speak of his identity. I could go on for hours about how the most important thing in a person's life is not that they are a servant of God or that they are uh, a soldier or an ambassador of God, but that they are a child first and that everything flows from that place. But I'm going I'm to refrain from talking about hours on that subject, and just say that the first thing we see here is that the Father declares who Jesus is, namely his Son. Second thing the Father declares is where Jesus stands, where his standing is in the Father, namely that he is loved and accepted. He says, you are my Son, and this is the standing. I love you. You are loved, and you are approved. You are accepted. Let me say it in language that we can understand a little more clearly. I'm proud of you, son. I am proud of you. Jesus, this is who you are. You are my son, and this is how I feel about you and how I think about you. That I love you, and I'm proud of you. The Father spoke to Jesus and over Jesus, and he, what he spoke was truth. Notice, just for a second, now, that the Father spoke these words of approval and affirmation and love before Jesus had done anything. Before he had done anything. His ministry hadn't even started yet. This was not a, I'm proud of you for performing well, or I'm proud of you for doing what I told you to do. This is, I'm proud of you because you're my son. Because I'm your father and you're my son. The father was pleased with him because of who he was, not what he had done. Some of you just need to hear that today and let that sink in. And so the father speaks this truth over Jesus about who he is and where he stands in the Father's eyes, mind, and heart. And then the third thing we see happen here, before the devil shows up, is that Jesus, for him, this is the beginning of something new. Jesus begins to walk in his calling here. Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more detail, and in Luke 4 it says that, then the Spirit led him into the wilderness, and from there he went out and started his public ministry. Up until this point, like I said, Jesus had been living this very quiet, on the down low kind of life. But this is the beginning of a new chapter. 
The Father is bringing Jesus out of obscurity and into the light. This is the beginning of all the miracles, all the healing, all the, uh, all the call to salvation, all of the uh, exposing of what the Father is really like and what the kingdom of the Father is really like. This is the beginning of the rest of Jesus' life. And here's why I wanted to point out these, these three things today. Again, it's not to glean everything that we can for this passage. Um, we'd have to spend an entire sermon just on that. But because this is what I see happening in our church. This is what I see happening in many of our lives. Um, there's, and it's been kind of like a supercharged version of this for the last six months and even more recently the last several weeks. First, we see the Holy Spirit moving. As we've been talking about the things of the Holy Spirit, it's been so beautiful to see just the Spirit of God moving in powerful ways in people's lives. People are receiving gifts and, and power, and people are being ministered to by those gifts in the body of Christ. People are being healed and set free as the, the, the Lord pours out His Spirit. There is a deep inward work of the Spirit in people's lives, just like there was with Jesus on that day. Second, there has been a revelation in many people's lives, and just even as a body, a revelation from the Father as he has spoken to his children and over his children. Just like Jesus, the Father has been speaking truth over people, affirming what is true and tearing down what is not. And lastly, many people for the first time ever are beginning to walk in who they were really intended to be. Some of you, that's like a, even a calling thing like it was with Jesus, walking along the path that God has for you, just like Jesus. Spirit moving upon people's lives, the Father speaking truth to and over his children, and people walking in the Father's plan. So it's like, yeah, awesome. This is so good, right? It's all lollipops and daisies from here on out. John the Baptist, you baptized me. All right, here we go. I've been waiting 30 years. Let's do this, Father. Let's go out. It's time to start the ministry. I'm going to go on a, a, a little solitude retreat where I'm fasting and praying in the wilderness with my father for 40 days. And then what happens? The devil shows up, right? The devil shows up. Jesus walks out of the Jordan where he was baptized and is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This new season has begun. We just read it a minute ago in verse 13. Then the devil shows up. It's like this immediately after the Spirit comes upon Jesus, after the Father speaks to him and over him, and after he begins to walk in what God has for him, the devil shows up. And isn't this the way it always seems to be? When everything is mellow and kind of stagnant maybe in the personal life or in the life of the church, it seems like the devil almost doesn't exist. But as soon as God starts pouring out his spirit and people start receiving his truth and love and approval and walking in the path that God has set before him, then all of a sudden the devil shows up. When the Lord starts moving, the devil starts moving too. And sometimes, just FYI, strange people as tools of the devil start showing up too. We've been talking about freedom the last, last several weeks a lot. And people are, you know, being set free from bondage and stuckness. You better believe that when you're in your bondage and in your stuckness, the devil doesn't really mess with you too much. He's like, cool, you, <laughs> you're doing good all by yourself. <laughs> but as soon as you start getting unstuck and start getting free, you better believe that he's going to show up. Satan meets us in our freedom. Charles Spurgeon said, God is not doing much if the devil is not awake and busy. Depend upon it. A working Christ makes a raging devil. And so I said I want to accomplish three things today. There's three goals. And the first one was to caution us. Well, I want to caution us that anytime the Lord starts moving, the devil's going to start trying to move as well. First Peter 5 8 through 11 says, now be sober, we read this a minute ago, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So resist him steadfast in the faith. Now notice here that Peter does not say, be scared, the devil's on the prowl. He doesn't say, hide your wife, hide your kids because the devil just showed up, right? That's not what Peter says. He's not telling anyone to hide or be scared, but he is saying be on guard, be cautious, be vigilant. However, even though the devil is on the move, it's kind of like we got the other team's playbook 
you know, you know exactly what they're going to do. Because Satan's crafty, no doubt. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have weapons and plans. He surely does. But he's been using the same weapons and the same plans since the beginning, quite frankly, because they usually work on people. And so I want to caution us today that the devil is at work, yes. But I also want to, the second thing I mentioned, expose how he works. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, exposing how he works, the facets of it, the avenues that he takes. I want to expose the work that the enemy does and how he does it. First of all, I want to expose his tools. So if you're taking notes, write these things down because this might be this week. The first tool the devil uses is temptation. Matthew 4, 3 refers to Satan as the tempter. In his evil fallen nature, Satan is a tempter and an accuser of the children of God. And he tempts in a few ways. We see it here with Jesus. We see it in Genesis 3 with Eve. First of all, the devil takes advantage of our weakness and our flesh through temptation and comes at us and against the work of God with, number one, the lust of the flesh. That is the temptation to gratify the flesh in some way. Often being tempted with something that you think your flesh, your carnal man, needs or something that will gratify your flesh in some way. For Jesus, it was bread, right? That's how Satan came to him. Something he thought his, maybe his flesh needed. For you, it might be something else. For, it could be something even like gossip or slander or being overly controlling. Something that gratifies the flesh. So be watchful when you are tempted to have your flesh gratified in any, any, any way. Be watchful when you hear a voice saying, hey, that physical need or that emotional or psychological need can't be met by God. Let me offer you a, a, better, a better way to meet and satisfy that need. Take, take caution when you feel yourself starting to look to money or meds or made West to satisfy and gratify your needs, all of which are morally neutral things, right? But can easily in a moment take the place of God if we allow them to. Another way the devil tempts us is with the lust of the eyes. That is, the longing for, with our physical eyes or the eyes of our hearts, something that is not for us to have. Something that is not for us to have. This is how Satan tempted Eve in the garden. The fruit was not for her to have, and yet she said, she looked at it and saw that it looked Good for eating, but it wasn't hers to eat. Be careful when you are presented with something that is not yours to eat or partake of. Be watchful when that opportunity or that person shows up. I'm not saying that God never does, you know, good or even lavish stuff in our lives. He surely does sometimes, but check your heart and be watchful because it might just be the enemy using your eyes to get to your heart and entangle it. And the last way I'll mention that Satan tempts us is through the pride of life. That is the need to attain excess greatness or power, just like what was offered to Jesus by Satan when he offered him the kingdoms of the world. This is also what caused Satan to fall from heaven. The temptation to be known, to be exalted, to be praised in some way. And he will tempt us with the same stuff, with power, with control, with influence in people's lives, with the ascent of greatness in our careers or in our social circles. And it's not that God doesn't want to sometimes elevate us or give us position or authority. Maybe he does. But you need to let him do it in his way so that your heart stays humble and his name gets praised. So be watchful. Check your heart. Be on guard. So the first way that the devil tries to thwart what God is doing is through temptation. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. The second way, though, is through deception. John 8, 44, speaking of Satan, says that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is, listen, no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. The second tool that the enemy uses is deception. And there's three parts of that. One, he does it with outright lies. He deceives with outright lies. He did it with Eve in the garden when he said, if you eat this, surely you will not die. Outright lie, contrary to what God had just said. 
Beware when you hear a voice speaking, even right now in your life. Beware when you hear a voice speaking something contrary to what God just spoke to you. It's called a lie. The second way that he deceives is through second guessing. Because remember what he did with Eve right before he told this outright lie? He started his whole dissertation with, did God really say, did God really say, Eve, that you're going to die if you eat the fruit? Surely God did not say. He was causing Eve to second guess what God had said. Take notice when you start hearing voices that make you question what just four hours ago or four days ago or four years ago God so clearly spoke to you. And the last way that he brings deception is through partial truths. This is a tricky one right here. Partial truths. The devil is a liar and the father of lies, but he's a crafty liar. And what I mean by that is that he will often lie by distorting or manipulating the truth. Or mixing a lie with truth. Partial truths. Did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Because maybe he meant this. He will take something that has some truth to it and distort it until it becomes bigger or different than it actually is. And it will have just enough truth attached to it for you to believe that is not a lie. That's what he did with Jesus when he said, if you are the son of God, truth. If you are the son of God, truth. This is like a lie sandwich, right? Truth, truth, lie in the middle. If you are the son of God, truth. And then this evil statement, a lie. Throw yourself off from here then, right? We see this in, in Luke 4 and Matthew 4. Then sandwich with another truth, this time from Scripture. God will send angels to rescue you. Partial truths mixed with lies to accomplish his purpose of deception and destruction. He attacks the identity of Jesus here. He's like, if you are the Son of God, which the Father had just declared, you are the Son of God. Beware of that voice that says, are you? Because the Lord says, you are, fill in the blank. Satan comes and says, are you? Same fill in the blank, right? Just same words. He just turns them around. Are you? You are. Beware of the devil coming and saying, are you? Are you really free? Are you really forgiven? Are you really hearing? Beware when he says, is he? God says, I am, fill in the blank. And the devil says, is he? Is he really faithful? Is he really speaking to you? Is he really going to provide for you? Is he really good? Is he really sovereign? The devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. He is out to, guys, rob our joy, kill our faith, and destroy our lives. He's out to undermine the very word and truth that God speaks to us. The truth is that Satan is condemned. Satan is judged. Satan is not a child. Satan is abandoned. Satan is without hope. He cannot get free. He is heavy laden and burdened. That is what is true about him, not about you. But he would love nothing more than for you to inherit his identity and believe that what is true about him is also true about you. But it is not. And so when you hear things in your head or heart that are also true about who Satan is and they're being spoken about you, that should be a telltale sign that you are starting to believe something about Satan's identity on behalf of yourself. That's not the voice of God. God has planted good seeds in you. Those are his words. Those are truthful things. Don't let the devil come like a bird of the air and snatch them up. Keep watch over the garden of your soul. Treasure and protect the truth that God has spoken to you and over you. And don't let the, the devil come and play in that garden of your, your heart and your mind. So those are the two main tools that we see the devil using. Temptation and deception. But how? How does he work those things? How does the devil do it? I want to I expose how the devil tries to take ground. Number one, through an opportunity. Satan is a, a squatter, which means that he takes ground when opportunity is awarded to him. And in the life of the Christian, the only way that opportunity is awarded to him is through either an open door that we give him or a weakness that he perceives and tries to take advantage of. 
First, Satan tries to undermine the work of God through an open door. Here's the deal. For the Christian, Satan has no legal right in our lives. However, he can and will take ground when he is given the opportunity. It's just like sin, right? Sin has no legal right in our lives after we trust in Jesus. It has been crucified with, the Christ, or with Christ on the cross. It is no longer uh, over us. We are no longer a slave to sin. If you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, listen, you don't have to practice sin anymore. You're like, I just can't stop. Yeah, you can, actually. You got the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do that any longer. Because it's been crucified, you've been crucified with Christ. You're a new creation. And yet, sometimes we sin. Right? Why? Because we give sin an opportunity. In Paul's words, we present our bodies as slaves to sin instead of slaves to God, and then sin takes ground. So it is with the devil. He has no authority over you. He is defeated. He has no right to mess with you. He has no sovereignty, and yet he will take whatever he is given. And this open door looks like two primary things. One, it, it looks like disobedience. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, for instance, says, don't let the sun go down while you are angry, continuing to be in your anger, right? Continuing in your bitterness, unforgiveness. For anger, listen, gives an opportunity to the devil. This word in the Greek for opportunity is the word tapos, from where we get our word like topography. It speaks of a geographical location, Unforgiveness and unrepentant bitterness and resentment, for instance, gives a tapas, a geographical location, a physical location to the devil. When we disobey the explicit command from Jesus to forgive one another, we award Satan an open door in our lives. 1 Samuel 15, 23 says that rebellion, that is disobedience to God, is like the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft, that is partnership, with the devil. Disobedience to God solicits partnership with the devil. Speaking of which, anytime we take part in Satan's activities, we open a door through partnership with the devil. Now, some of this is obvious, like the occult and witchcraft and stuff like that, but some of this could be super subtle. Like, for instance, putting condemnation on other Christians, like casting judgment on other Christians, like gossiping and slandering other Christians. Why is that the, the work of Satan? Why is that partnering with the work of Satan? Because Revelation 12.10 says that that is actually Satan's role, that he is called the accuser of the brethren. And so when we gossip or slander or cast judges, judgment, we are actually partnering with the role and character of the enemy. Same thing with believing lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about each other, lies about God. Satan is the father of lies, and every time you give in to and believe a lie, you are partnering with his very nature, often to our own demise. Satan also caused basically the first ever church split in all of the universe, right? All of this mass of people, thousands upon thousands times ten thousands of angels all gathered, not people, angels, beings gathered around the throne of God, worshiping him. Satan rises up, this little thing, starts slandering God, starts speaking against God, convinces a third of the body, if you will, that what he says is true and divides the whole thing. A third of them cast out of heaven to the earth. Satan causing, if you will, the first ever church split. And so when we, we partner with him, when we start doing those same things and start speaking against and, and trying to grab people onto our team and come against these things and partnering with him and his divisiveness. So Satan has no legal right in the life of the Christian. We are not partnered with him as people of God. We're partnered with Jesus, and yet when he is given an opportunity or a door through disobedience or partnership, he will take it. And he will even try to take that which is not given, which brings us to our next sub-point here. The other opportunity that he takes advantage of is our natural or fleshly weaknesses. Are you prone to physical exhaustion? Just be cautious. Be cautious when you're physically exhausted. That's where Satan might try to show up. Are you tempted with lust? Keep watch when you're on the internet. Satan knows where to meet you. Which means that we need to take caution and 
keep watch with those things that are, are weak and do what needs to be done to prevent ourselves from getting in vulnerable situations where we can be taken advantage of. The only place that Satan has in the life of the Spirit-filled Christian is the place that we have given him knowingly or not. So he tries to take ground through an opportunity, but he also does it sneakily. Ephesians 6, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm using it. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now listen, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is sneaky right here. It's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul, he's writing to a church right here, and he's encouraging them, and he's like, hey, there's going to be some struggles that seem like they're against, like, people and just stuff in this world, but they're actually against spiritual forces of wickedness, which means that sometimes a battle will seem like it is carnal of the nature of the world and humanity, but is actually demonic in nature. Don't be deceived into believing that every concern or conflict has and is always about what we see on the surface. Don't assume that everything, though, is the devil either. I'm not saying that. But sometimes what may seem like a natural wrestle could very be, well be influenced to one degree or another by the enemy. And the enemy will take ground however he can, and he will do it sneakily. And this could be through a slew of avenues, right? Here's our, some of the co- most common ones, though. I'm going to put these out here so that we know. Because sneaky stuff is only good if you, ex- it's only helpful if you expose it, right? So I want to expose it here. Here's some of the avenues that the enemy operates sneakily in. Through deception and distortion of lies. We spoke about this earlier. Things that are kind of truth, but being blown out of proportion. Be careful of those things. Relational conflict. Things that seem on the surface like they're just between us and this natural conflict, but the enemy's actually behind it. Divisions in the body of Christ or in the community, because this is actually Satan's, like part of his nature. But it's sneaky. Confusion. This is a sneaky one too. By making things convoluted or confusing, the Bible says that God is not the author of confusion. Satan is the author of confusion. So when things are just like, ah, oh, it's just so weird. I'm trying to like nail it down. We're having this thing. I just, it starts to smell like Satan is what I say. Religiosity. Sneakily saying stuff like, you got, man, you, you, I mean, God started this cool thing, but you got to do something now to like keep this up. You gotta, you gotta perform in some way to keep this thing going. Or religiosity also getting people to major in the minors, to make a big deal out of things or maybe theology or doctrines that aren't actually a big deal. Legalism is another form of religiosity. Trying to put a yoke of moralism on Christians instead of allowing righteous living to flow from a relationship with Jesus. This is a sneaky tactic of the enemy. And then the last sneaky avenue I'll mention that the enemy uses is fear. If a thought or emotion you are experiencing is surrounded by or grounded in fear, let me just say that it is not of God. Now, when God calls us into something new or starts doing something new in our lives, it can be like, whoa, this is a trip. Like, I don't understand this, which can maybe create some nervousness because we're out of control. That's all right. But that's not, that's not the same as fear. What we see in Scripture is that when God poured out His Spirit, stuff got a little bit trippy in people's lives, right? Like stuff that was outside of the norm started happening. So we should expect that the Spirit-filled life is not going to look just like the life of the unregenerate person. And that may make you a little bit nervous, and that's all right. But if it's causing fear, then you need to ask yourself, man, what am I afraid of? Because fear is not of God. God is moving, but I'm afraid. Is Satan maybe squatting on my weakness? Let's expose that because he wants to use that to our demise. So the enemy will try to take an opportunity or take ground through an opportunity. He will do it sneakily through many different avenues. And when does he do it? When does the enemy take advantage and attack? First of all, when we are weak. Because he is a squatter, he will look to attack when he sees an opportunity. Jesus, for instance, it says the devil showed up after Jesus had been fasting, no water, no food, for 40 days in the desert. The dude is weak. Jesus is weak, and he's hungry. And that is when the enemy 
shows up when Jesus was most vulnerable. And often that's what he will do in our lives. So be cautious, be vigilant when you're physically weak or emotionally drained or when your sex drive is high or you're socially lonely. Satan will use all of our weaknesses of our humanity to try to get the best of us. And if he can't find a a weakness, then he will wait until we are puffed up (laughs) with pride. He will attack when we are proud. Beware when you think you stand lest you fall. It was Satan's pride that caused him to want to be like God. And when we get proud, we partner with his nature. And that is when he lunges at us. James 4 says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Submit to God, and right after the statement, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen, God pursues the humble to distribute grace. The devil pursues the proud to distribute destruction. The devil will also attack when we are already just in the flesh. Again, Satan is a squatter, and so you start dabbling in sin or giving over to your sinful nature in some way, Satan will squat on that and take advantage of that. He likes to attack when we are isolated, in our solitude. Have you ever seen a wolf go after a sheep in a fold? It waits until there's a sheep that's disconnected from the rest of the fold, until it's isolated, and then he attacks. That's not the way the body of Christ was designed to be. Don't don't isolate yourself. You need communion. That's how God designed the body of Christ. Tim Chaddock in his book, The Truth About Lies, says, That day in the wild, Jesus was not enjoying a feast with his followers. Neither was he surrounded by a crowd of listeners. He was alone. Satan knew this. In fact, part of his strategy was that he waited to tempt Jesus in his solitude and in his need. Why? Because Satan not only seeks to exploit our condition, but he also takes advantage of our situation. And lastly, the devil will plunge for us when he is threatened. We see this throughout the entire New Testament, that as the kingdom of God was advancing, Satan came against it. Sometimes it was obvious with people who were demonized, they had demons in them, but sometimes it was very subtle, like with one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who was being used as a tool of Satan. Here's the deal, guys. The kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is advancing. Somebody say amen. The king, somebody say Amen. The kingdom of God is advancing in a very personal way in many of our lives. And Satan hates it. He hates it because he knows where it leads. He knows the fruit that comes from it. And ultimately, it is to his demise. God is on the move and the devil is threatened by that and so he will respond. But here's the deal. You don't have to be afraid, but you do need to be aware. Now, somebody asked me this week, why, why, why do we even give the devil an opportunity? Why, like, why do we do this? Why do we like let it in? Well, let me just say these things out loud because this is, I want to speak these things out loud because this is what happens often in our lives. Why we give an opportunity to Satan. Sometimes it's shame. That's a lie. It says, I, you know what, I just deserve, I deserve this, man. I deserve this. That's a lie. Sometimes it's ease. Seems like it's less work to take that route that we're being tempted by. It takes a lot of steadfastness and consistency to continually rest in the finished work of Jesus. It seems harder sometimes, like more work to reprogram our thinking and believing to believe truth than it is to just continue believing that lie that we've lived with for so long. Or maybe it's, it's comfort. It's based on our, our own need in our life. It just seems like easier to just like, okay, it's just more comfortable or I can, I can have that need met right now, like Jesus when he was tempted with turning the stone into the bread. Right now, hey Jesus, you can just satisfy this right now. It just seems easier. The other reason why we might give him opportunity is because there's immediate gratification. Tempted with like a, an easier route to the destination. This is what Jesus was tempted with from Satan when he said, I'll just give you all the kingdom right now without your sacrifice. But remember guys, this is so important. Often the journey with God is the destination. God has you on a path for a reason. Don't short circuit what God is doing in your life when he's moving in your life. Give it space. Let him move step by step, day by day, and grow deeper what he has already begun. I know it feels like in some of your lives that everything is brand new and fresh, and here we go. It's all changed because God has like uprooted my old tree. 
But remember, the new tree he's planted is just like a little baby tree. It's a little baby tree. You've got you to give it some time and some space and care for that thing. Every single day in the life of a new tree is critical. The other reason we might give the devil an opportunity is entitlement. That is, what the devil is tempting me or lying to me about affirms my fleshly desire and gratifies something that is carnal in me. And so I give in. It's like, yes, I, I want this. I, I, I kind of, maybe I deserve this even. This next one, capitulation. Thank you, Brian Buffin, for this fancy word. The act of surrendering or seizing to res- resist an opponent is what capitulation is. It says, you know what? It already owns me. It already owns me. What does it matter now? I'm already defeated. What does it matter? I'm already thrashed. I'm already done. Who cares if I give in to the devil? This also plays out with discouragement and hopelessness. It's like, it's like what's the point? That's a lie. Don't give in to that. And then the last two reasons why we might give the devil an opportunity is misappropriation of grace and freedom. Taking advantage of grace and freedom. We are called to freedom for sure, it says in Galatians. But do not use this freedom, it says, as an opportunity to gratify the flesh. And then the last reason we might give in is just purely recklessness. You know, the person who's like, oh, I'm going to date that, that person who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't follow Jesus, and I'm going to like flirt to convert, right? Which like never actually happens, by the way. That's recklessness. It's the, the dude who's wrestled with pornography his entire life, giving himself free access to a computer or an iPhone whenever he wants. It's recklessness. This is us putting ourselves in a situation where we are forcing God to do something miraculous and rescue us. We are essentially doing what Satan told Jesus to do when he said, jump off the cliff and God will save you. Test God if he will save you or not. It is reckless and it plays right into the hand of Satan. And so we'll close with this. What then do we do when the devil shows up? That was all just like exposing the devil. But let me encourage us now. Briefly, I'll just spend five or six minutes here. What do we do when the devil shows up? All right, God is at work, but then the devil shows up and starts moving. I start hearing lies. My flesh is engaged. There's conflict with others. I'm experiencing fear or doubt or shame. What do I do? First of all, expose it for what it is. Expose it for what it is. Everybody say expose. Expose it for what it is. You call it out. You expose it. You say, that's not truth. You say it out loud. I say it out loud. That's not true. Nope, that's not true. I say out loud, I'm not letting you take ground, Satan. I'm not letting you speak that to me. Do that in my life. You expose it for what it is. Next, you recall and recite the truth. Everybody say, recall and recite. You recall and recite the truth. You remind yourself what God said. You remind yourself who he is and who you are. You listen to music that is truth. You read scripture, which is truth. You get in the presence of God where you can hear his voice speaking truth. Know the voice of Jesus and know the voice of Satan too. How do you know it's the voice of Satan? Well, it's going to be speaking contrary to the voice of Jesus. Be in the truth and when the lies come, you'll know. We didn't talk about the gift of the discerning of spirits, but I'm praying for us, church, that every single one of us get the spiritual gift of discerning of spirits to know what is from the devil, what is from the Lord, and what is from the flesh. What else do we do when the devil shows up? We shut off opportunities. Have you given an open door? Is there an open door in your life through disobedience or through partnering with some kind of thinking that is not of God? Cut that partnership off. Shut that door. Is there a weak place in your life that he can squat on? Do what you can to strengthen that weak spot. We also need to remind the devil who he is and who Jesus is. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed, that is, took the weapons away from the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly, triumphing over them in the cross. Disgraced them publicly, literally, the phrase, and historically, it means it was the phrase that was used when a victory was done with two opponent, like, armies, and the champions were fighting at the end, like Goliath with David, and then the victorious one put his foot on the head of the defeated one after like the war and the battle was over. That's what it means when it says that Jesus made a public spectacle (laughs) of Satan. 
that like after the cross, that he just put his head on the defeated one. You need to remind Satan that he is a defeated foe and that he only gets what we give him. We need to remind ourselves of that. We need to remember also who Jesus is. Right? That Jesus is the victorious one. And we need to tell Satan, hey, you're not going to get any space in my life. Jesus already won the victory. You need to tell him, no more, that's it. And the more you do it, the more he'll get it. The way I think it goes down in the spiritual realm, because this is what it, realm, because this is what it seems like in my life, is that the more I like tell demons their place and remind them who Jesus is and who I am in Jesus. I almost feel like they go back and they tell all their little stupid little buddies, hey, dude, don't even try to mess with that dude. He just like, he, he, he knows too much truth. He knows too much truth. He just, he just can't. It almost feels like that in my life. And the more that we give in, it's like, hey, dude, this one's a good one over here. Right? Speak truth to yourself. Remind the devil who he is. Remind yourself who Jesus is. And be vigilant, sober, and watchful. We must be on guard. And don't wait, guys. Be proactive. Close your door now. Guard your soul now before the devil shows up. And again, you don't need to be afraid, but you do need to be aware. Keep your hand on the plow, but just know. Just know. You don't need to be scared, but just know. Keep your eyes on Jesus, but just know. Speaking of which, keep your eyes on Jesus. The more you keep your eyes on Jesus and your ears fixed on his voice, the easier it will be to decipher what is not of Jesus and not of his voice. And sing praise. I know it sounds simple, but sing. Not like Bruno Mars sing, but worship God through song. There is something powerful in song. Passages like 2 Chronicles 20 and Acts 16 seem to suggest that when God's people worship in song, that the enemies of God start falling and the hand of God starts moving. And stand firm in Christ's victory and resist the devil. Be vigilant, be cautious for sure, But remember whose team you're on. Remember whose team you're on. You are a child of God and you have all the authority of Jesus. Jesus is victorious and we are in him, which means that we don't fight for victory. We fight from the victory. We don't fight for victory. We fight from the victory. You don't have to try to get it. Jesus already got it. There is not an equal battle going on here. I wonder who's going to win. Jesus already won and we are in him. And you have everything you need to resist the devil and shut up his lies. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, it says in 1 John. Ephesians 6 says that you have this shield of faith that extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one. Ephesians 1 and 2 says you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he is far above all principalities and powers. Where every single name that is named is subject to him. And we're there with him. And 2 Corinthians 10 says that you have weapons that are not of this world, but that are mighty in God for the tearing down of strongholds and for the tearing down of every thought that tries to exalt itself above the truth of who Christ is and what he says. The Bible doesn't just say resist the devil. Good luck with that. The Bible says you have everything you need to resist him, and when you do, he will flee. He's already defeated. So when he shows up at your house or in your relationship or on your computer or in your head or on your Instagram feed, you need to let him know whose house it is, whose phone it is, whose computer it is, whose mind it is, whose eyes they are. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Matthew 10 says that you have been given authority by Jesus over demons. You are a child of God and have all the authority of Jesus. Resist him and he will flee. And sometimes in my experience, it takes a little bit. Like resist, 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 resist. And then it's like, where'd the devil go? Right? That's what, that's what happened with Jesus. He kept resisting, resisting, speaking truth, speaking truth. Finally, the devil's like, I'm out. This isn't going to work. Right? And he finally fled, resist him, and he will flee. He's a defeated foe, which means he's all bark with no bite. If Satan is like a lion, then Jesus defanged him and declawed him on the cross. You want to talk about a lion? Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the one with all power and authority. So Jesus says what goes. And the last thing we need to do, and I'm going to read this passage and we'll pray, is pray. 
This is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. And he said sometimes the gnarly demonic stuff only releases when you pray and fast. So pray. Pray for you. Pray for me. Pray for one another. Pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Pray like he prayed in John 17 for unity. Pray for one another. Read this passage here and then we'll pray. Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for the saints. So Put on the full armor of God, but pray for one another. And today, during the second set of worship, the prayer team is available here to pray for anybody who just feels like, man, I've just been getting beat up. Are you here today and you're like, I'm just getting beat up. The prayer team is here to pray for you or for any other need that you might have. Even if you can't express it, they'll pray for you. Father, thank you that you have given us everything that we need in you to resist the devil, to not allow him to have influence in our lives. We thank you for the great work you're doing in and among us. We thank you for how you're speaking and how you're moving, how you're pouring out from your very being into our lives. We thank you for the work you're still yet to do. But Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see how and when the enemy is wanting to come against that work, how he's wanting to deceive and attack, how he's wanting to undermine what you're doing, what you're saying. Give us eyes to see, minds to discern, hearts to know when that's happening. And I do pray, Lord, right now, I just want to ask for my brothers and sisters here that you would give every single one just like a corporate spiritual gift of discernment to know man that's the work of the enemy or no 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 that's this is God doing a good thing in my life or man that's just my flesh would you would you pour out your spirit Lord and give every person in this room everything that we need for this season of our lives we look to you in Jesus name